0: All right, I think we're broadcasting now. Welcome, everybody, uh, here on Monday afternoon where I am, or I think it, it's, it's, uh, it's an afternoon now for Miguel as well. Uh, we have a fantastic webinar today with uh, Miguel De Torre, who is Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at ILEP School of Theology in Denver. Uh, so thank you, Miguel, for, uh, for joining us this afternoon. We were just talking for a couple of minutes about how crazy this week is for for folks that are going to be at AAR in San Diego at the end of the week. So we're, we're doubly grateful to have a little bit of your time as everyone's, you know, sort of trying to plan and cram all their productivity into the beginning of the week before everyone jets off to California. And we don't get anything done for a couple of days because we're all talking to each other. So thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Miguel is going to talk with us today um, on his, his work and his idea of hopelessness. Uh, and what that has to do with care of the human spirit and why an idea that seems really negative uh, actually has a lot to offer us today. So, Miguel, I'll turn it over to you.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me and being part of this. and um, I'm I'm happy to talk about hopelessness and why I think that becomes a crucial, um, crucially to embrace as a form of liberative praxis. So so let me maybe begin by how I started to to wrestle with this idea of hope. Um, I took a group of students to Cuernavaca, Mexico, where we were studying the impact of neoliberal policies um, of the United States and how it's connecting to the poverty in Mexico. And we went to a squatter village. And um, afterwards, that, that evening, as the students were beginning to unpack what we experienced, one of my um, students said, you know, I know it's miserable the way these people live. But when I looked at the little girls, I saw the hope in their eye. And, and at that point, I think I had an epistemological meltdown. Because what I basically said was, I'm not quite sure what you saw in her eyes. But in a couple of years, she's going to be turning tricks to put food on, on, on the table. There is no hope for her. There is no hope for her children. There may be no hope for her grandchildren she and her life is stuck in this economic poverty for generations to come. And to impose hope on her basically frees us of our our responsibility to her. So that really began for me a long journey on on hope and embracing hopelessness. And and as a um, Maybe I should quickly now look at it a little bit philosophically, and then I'll go into the ethical, practical part of it. Uh, somebody like, like Moltmann, for example, Joran Moltmann writes The Theology of Hope. And his whole premise is that because history is dialectically moving in an upward progressive manner, because we're moving towards a salvation at the end of history, um, No matter how bad things are, we can always rely on God's promises to keep God's promises. And that's why we could have hope. However, um, unfortunately, I think I drank the Foucault Kool-Aid, which means that um, I don't believe history is linear, nor do I believe history is connected as far as time is connected, moving us to something upward and progressively. Once you reject that, once you reject the dialectical movement of history, then the end time could be anything. It could be great, or it could be horrific. Um, Basically, what happens is we look back at moments of time, and we arbitrarily pick certain moments, and we string them together, so that we could justify what we want to do tomorrow. And this gives us the sense of a movement of history. But anyone can pick different moment of times and come up with a very different thing that we should be doing for tomorrow. So history is, in that respect, a construct. It's something we create today to justify what we want to do tomorrow by using what what happened yesterday. Now, if all that is true, then this concept of hope is nothing but a faith statement imposed on the uncertainty of tomorrow so that we can feel at peace today. What I am discovering is that for the least among the least, that there is no certainty for tomorrow. And if we're going to share the space of the most oppressed and be in radical solidarity with them, we can't show up imposing a Eurocentric privileged hope upon them and thus dismissing that death might be the only thing waiting for them tomorrow. And and what I found then is that hope becomes in this respect a very middle-class privilege. In other words, as long as I have enough money coming in from my job, and I live in a location and where my kids can go to college, no matter what, how poor I might be, then I can have hope. Mm -hmm. But when those things aren't available, what do you do? How do you respond? I'm reminded when I went to Auschwitz, the sign over the gate said, work will set you free. And anyone who's been there remembers that, 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 that sign. And here's the hope that if I work hard, if I keep my head down, if I don't make ways, then I might survive. So in this way, hope bec- domesticates me not to rebel against oppression, because I may have something to lose if I rebel. So besides the philosophical understanding of the movement of time, there's this ethical understanding that hope has a tendency to domesticate my protest. But when I have nothing to lose, when tomorrow is, a, you know, it could bring death just as relatively as it could bring life, that's when I become the most radical. When, I'm already, when I know that death is already what's waiting for me, that's when I will do whatever it takes to survive. And what I'm trying to do is get those who live in the, in, in the shadows, who live in, in that moment, like with Job sitting in the dust, to, to get to that point so that we can begin to implement a radical praxis that might be able to bring up new opportunities. So what do I do with this hopelessness? We have developed a society where I have to go to the police department to get a permit from the police department to protest the police department for police brutality. We have domesticated protests so that we can go and carry a sign and march and feel good about ourselves. But at the end, nothing changes. I mean, put, put it this way. Um, um, we're the only society that you can drive to a march. <laughs> and you have to think of the privilege of being able to drive so you can march. And, and, that's, and, and, and that's where we, we are right now. And, and what I'm trying to do with this hopelessness is to debunk all that. What I'm trying to say is that when we stand... Um, in the presence of global neo, neoliberalism, where the structures are designed to kill, literally kill, a vast majority of the world's population, to play by the rules becomes a reinforcement of the oppression people are already experiencing. So, what I've begun to develop as a response to the hopelessness is what I've been calling an ethics para jorel. Now, for those who don't know the language of the angels yet, let me translate what jorel means. And for those of you who know what jorel means, you're probably are chuckling that this is not exactly the language of angels, because there's a certain word that you don't really use in polite conversation. To jorel, it's similar to the English four letter word that begins with F, and ends with K. And what I'm calling for is an ethics that screws with the structures that are designed to destroy us. It is an ethics that does not play by the rules. How do I ethically steal? People can eat. How do I ethically lie so that people can find out what the truth is? So, so, so it's. It, it, it makes ethics a little more complex. And, and, and what I'm doing is I'm being influenced by those symbols of my own culture. So uh, coming from the Caribbean, um, which was highly influenced by the Yoruba people and the spirituality when they uh, were brought over as slaves, um, there is one particular deity, an Orisha, or we, as we call it, um, named Elegua, and as it so happens, I'm a child of Elegua. Um, I used to be a practitioner of Santeria, which is part of, the, um, of this Afro-Cuban um, cosmology. Elegua is the trickster. And, and what I find is that many oppressed groups usually have a trickster image. In the African-American community, you have Bear Rabbit and Bear Bear. Mm-hmm the indigenous community, you have coyote and you have spider. Um, And within my tradition from the Caribbean, we have elegua, which is also true for Haiti and Brazil and Mm -hmm. and and the trickster among oppressed people have always been that person or that creature that does what's unexpected to trick people in order to create new opportunities that might lead to liberation, or it could lead to destruction. I would argue that for those who are Christians, the biblical text is full of tricksters. Unfortunately, our, our Puritanism has beaten the trickster image out of the biblical text. But I mean, you think of Tamar, who plays the prostitute, in order to trick Judah into confessing that he's the one that did wrong and not her. Or think of, um, of, of David, who plays the madman um, in front of the other king so as to save his people from being slaughtered. Uh, think of Laban and Jacob, who were playing tricks on each other the whole time. You know, to the point of on the wedding night, Laban tricks Jodah by putting the, the, a different woman into his bedchamber as his bride. And of course, did Jacob now tricked um, Laban as well, and pretended he didn't really realize there was a different woman in his bed? So, so you have all these trickster images within the biblical text that we don't acknowledge because our Christianity has been so influenced by a Eurocentric Puritan uh, form of Christianity. Um, I would argue that Satan is not the the, the, um, the, the personification of evil. I think that is an invention um, that occurs during the inter-biblical uh, time. But in fact, Satan has always been the trickster in biblical times. You know, Satan is, in the book of Job, tricking God and Job to find out if Job would really honor God. Um, it's not until later that he becomes evil. Mm. I would argue that Satan even as a trickster trying to trick Jesus in the desert ends up teaching Jesus that his mission is the salvation of humanity. Uh, And and Jesus doesn't fall for the tricks. Um, um, I would even say Jesus is the ultimate trickster. When you start thinking about things like, you know, do we pay taxes? Well, show me a coin. I mean, these are all the humorous ways that tricksters operate. So I'm trying to recapture that trickster image, I think, within the text, at the same time, being faithful to the trickster image within marginalized communities Mm -hmm. and bringing both of those together. So I know I've done a lot of talking, um, probably more than I should have, but I wanted to at least give an overview Mm -hmm. of of, of what this um, ethics of hopelessness is, I'm sorry, what the theology of hopelessness is and what an ethics of Horet is.
0: There's this great question that someone already asked, and I, I think it will sort of get to the, the ramifications of applying this idea in various settings. Someone says, is hopelessness in in the, the soul, or I would say maybe the, just the worldview of a soldier who has seen humanity in its ugliest form in... Ugliest form in war, the same hopelessness as the poor and oppressed. So is hopelessness the same when it is expressed in in
1: very not expressed but found in very different settings? That's a good question. I really I have to think about that. Um, You know, not being engaged in a war and not being a soldier, I I really hesitate to now say, well, what you know, this is the kind of hopelessness soldiers feel. I will say that for at least the oppressed, and I can only speak with a little bit more experience on that respect, um, the hopelessness I'm talking about is one in where no matter what happens, um, the structures are not going to change anytime soon, specifically in my lifetime or the lifetime of my children. Uh, And it is coming to terms with that, um, as opposed to just assuming that it's all going to work out at the end. Um, It may not work out and and I guess this is what I'm trying to get my students to realize Do you fight for social justice because you think you're going to win? You know, it's very easy to to jump on the bandwagon um, For justice once pretty much, you know, it looks like you know that that we're gonna win and everybody all of a sudden has been for justice but when you know you're going to lose and you know that in that loss, death is what may be awaiting you, do you still fight for that justice? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I'm hoping that what my students would say is that I fight for social justice regardless of the outcome because it defines my very humanity and it defines my very faith. That's what I'm, what I'm trying to get the student to get to that point that we don't do this work of justice because somehow we're, you know, moving the dial forward and we're all going to win at the end. We may not. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because I'm not the savior. (laughs) It's not dependent upon me. The only thing that's dependent upon me is my faithfulness to what I say, I believe. And, 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 and just want one more thing about you know going back to the soldier and, and the poor for a moment. Again, I can't, speak for the, I can't speak for the soldier. But when I was writing the book, Embracing Hopelessness, right, and I was putting that book together, uh, one of my TAs was a gang member. And he ended up getting arrested and going to prison. And with my permission, he took the manuscript, before the book was published, with him to prison. And with other gang members, they began to have a Bible study, quote unquote, based on my manuscript. And we kept in touch, and one of the things that he said that I, I, I think really moved me was that the guys in prison understood what I was talking about. They got it. They didn't have to, um, it didn't have to be explained to them. I, I find that with people who have economic privilege, I spent a lot of time trying to explain this. They instinctively understood what I was saying and, and, and what I'm trying to get at is, if they got it, to try to move the action, the praxis, away from praxis that could be destructive to praxis that could be positive. Instead of you know, using destructive means by dealing with the trauma of hopelessness, and this is where the question about the soldier might come in, what I'm trying to get is for us to channel that rage that that hopelessness, that, dis- that desperation into an action that could be more liberating. Not that it's gonna fix the world or it's gonna fix the individual, but might lead us towards something that's a bit more just.
0: You know, it occurs to me that grappling with this question, and I don't think we're gonna, we're not gonna come up with an answer you know, in the next half an hour to this, but grappling with this question really, is what chaplains in a number of settings, that's that's the nature of their work. There's this question that came in that says, is there a realistic hope, uh, they, they use quotes, those aren't my quotes, is there a realistic hope, one that speaks with a sense of honesty and acknowledgement about reality, like talking with a cancer patient about their reality? So I'm thinking of chaplains that are working in palliative care, um, Uh, chaplains in correction settings where people are going to be there for life or maybe executed. These are hopeless situations, right? Nothing is going to change. Um, And in a sense, it's almost even worse than a social justice setting because nothing can be done, not even radically. There is no radical action I can take if I'm dying of cancer. I'm going to die of cancer. There is no hope. What does the chaplain do in that situation? Um, You know, there's no ready-made answer, but I think that Grappling with this question of hopelessness is what makes a chaplain a good chaplain
1: and I, and I think you're absolutely right. not that I think last year I spoke at a chaplaincy gathering um, and and, these, and this particular issue came up in the conversations of you know we're chaplains, you know what do we do? I think the worst thing we can do I 'm not, not a chaplain, so I 'm speaking outside of my lane here. But I think the worst thing a chaplain can ever do is provide hope when there is no hope, right. um, I think that's lying. I, I, I really do, and I think all it may do is save the chaplain the uncomfortable position of having to deal with reality, Yeah, I'm quite frankly. Secondly, I think that the person who's dying of cancer probably knows they're dying of cancer,
0: <laughs> yes. you know.
1: So, so, so to provide any type of hope in that situation I think does that person a disservice. Right. Um, it's, uh, somebody once said, it's, br- it's easy to be brave from a safe distance. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't have right. cancer, but if I was dying from cancer, I would like to know I'm dying. Yeah. I would like to be able to have time to make the necessary arrangements and have closure to my life. Um, and I think here's where a chaplain can be so crucial, right. in helping me... Move from a mo- uh, a moment of desperation and despair to a moment of embracing, and even being able to 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 um, to, to find closure and, and, and to do some some good before you know I go on because after all we're all going to die anyway you know right. or one or another so it doesn't make sense to me. now now doing that conference it was interesting I had one individual. Who shared about a family member who committed suicide, mm-hmm. and was saying, "Well, you know, maybe if they had more hope, they may not have done so." And that was a very good question that I wrestled with, and at the, and, and my response, and, and I was trying to be sensitive, you know, um, to the situation. But but my response was, you know, I have no idea why a person would commit suicide, and I'm not qualified to even get into that. But I'm wondering if, for some people trying to live up to a a false illusion that Mm -hmm. it's all gonna work out and then realizing it's not, if that might help, if that might trigger more desperate situations. Would it have been better to walk along in solidarity in the midst of the suffering, the suicidal um, uh, tendencies? Mm -hmm. I think of Job um, when his three friends show up to comfort him. And it says they sat with him for a week, and that's and the problem occurred when they opened their mouth and started talking, then God got upset with them. <laughs> and, and maybe the problem is, in the midst of the hopelessness, not to try to find answers, but just to be in solidarity and, 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 and reflect what the person's feeling. If they want to talk about the hopelessness of the situation, Engage that conversation. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm a, you know, I was, one of the things I do, my father will be doing it this week, is I go into the desert and I leave food and water mm-hmm. on the migrant trails. And I remember once I came across one person who started telling me that, you know, he was walking the migrant trail and the Virgin Maria, you know, La de Guadalupe, appeared to him and, and, and guided him to where the water was. And, and he never lost hope because, the, you know, the Virgin saved him. Now, at that moment, I didn't go into a conversation about hopelessness and embracing hopelessness. Instead, I said, you know, praise the Virgin, you know, hallelujah, you know, this is great. I reflected where he was and what he needed to hear. Right. But internally, I was thinking, well, yeah, every four days, five brown bodies perish in the desert. Where the hell was the Virgin for them? You know, and, 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 and those are the people that I will talk to about hopelessness as opposed to this person who is celebrating it. So I think that's part of the chaplaincy's job as well, to know when to speak about an issue like this and when the person's ready to have that conversation.
0: Right. So in the meantime,
1: not providing them with false solutions.
0: So there is this great question that came in. And, and Josh, I'm going to try to distill it because I think if I read it, it's going to get jumbled. It, it, I can read it easily, but if I say it, it's going to get a little jumbled. So I'm going to try to distill it here what is the difference between hopelessness that leads to action and hopelessness that leads to apathy? Mm. Because, you know, when you talked about the, the, the little girls at the beginning and someone said, I saw so much hope and that absolves them of any responsibility. And I understand that, but hopelessness could also say, so I'm not going to do anything
1: because there's no hope for them. So I don't have to do anything. Absolutely. And that's a fantastic question. And, 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 and the bottom line is there is no difference. And I want to be clear about that. Um, And and that is, this is messy stuff we're talking about. There are no clear answers. I have a choice. In the midst of the hopelessness, I could say, what the heck, it's not gonna make any difference, so why bother? That is the epitome of middle-class privilege. (laughs) I can walk away. I have the privilege of walking away and doing nothing, okay? And in that choice that I make, I deny the very faith that I claim I have. And just as importantly, I deny my very humanity for not being able to stand in solidarity with those who are suffering. So yes, apathy is a choice that hopelessness can lead to, and I can definitely embrace. Um, Another choice is um, escapism in where I deal with the hopelessness through narcotics or through drugs or getting drunk or, 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 or just seeking pleasure. Or, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I a diversion to the hopelessness and also not. And again, that's another privilege that, you know, that, that, that I can engage in. And I think the job of the ethicist, that's me, is to instead channel that not towards apathy, not towards escapism, but towards praxis. Mm -hmm. Not everyone will follow me on that journey, but I want to be very honest. There there is not an either or here. There isn't like, you know, is there a difference? All these three choices are possibilities. Mm -hmm. And in the radicalness of free will, we have to choose which of those three we're going to go. And as somebody once said, um, I know not what other choice others may take, but as for me and my house, right, we will go ahead and, 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 and go and, and do radical praxis.
0: So there are these two questions, and they, I think they're related, so I'm going to try to tie them together. Um, someone says, is there always some kind of hope in a situation? So if you're dying, not life, but less pain or some other type of healing, or is moving from despair to closure something to hope for? My sort of way of tying those together is is by acknowledging hopelessness and acting as a result. Are you moving into hope by doing that and I feel like I feel like we 're saying these words so often that now they 're starting to sound strange you know when you start to repeat things. but as soon as I start doing something, have I not created hope? for something, even if it's not, you know, a better life for those little girls, but for them to know that someone acknowledges their humanity and is at
1: least trying to do something. So, so I guess the question is, am I playing the trickster and truly providing hope by saying that it's hopeless? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a good question, because again, if I'm, if I'm embracing the trickster image, that might be part of what I'm doing. But I, but I wanna be careful in in how I respond, and and let let me just go a little bit around the corner before I get to the main question. You mentioned despair, and and I wanna be clear. It is Moltmann who says that the opposite of hope is despair. I disagree with him, I think he's absolutely wrong. The opposite of hope is desperation, and there's a difference there. Despair means I roll up in the fetus position and gnash gnash my teeth, teeth and weep. Desperation is what people feel in uh, south of the border where they have no choice but to cross a desert knowing they may die. But if they don't cross that desert, they'll die where they are. And desperation propels us to radical action. Now, if I understand that desperation um, in that way as opposed to despair, yes, it may lead to something good. And, and it goes back to what I was saying about history. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. It could be good. It could be horrible. We, can, we could be entering into a fascist state, political state, that's going to unleash a new genocide. Or we can ent- be entering into a new enlightened period in where we take care of the very least of these through our society. Those are obviously good options. I mean, well, one's good, one's bad. <laughs> both, both of them are equally uh, an equal option. Now, the praxis that I'm engaged in, the social action that I engage in, the, 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 the justice building that I'm trying to do, I am hopeless. I think more than likely we're going to move towards something worse. I think human nature, history, Um, And what I'm seeing going on leads me to believe that it's going to be more profitable to a certain segment of the population to move towards a worse social order. But maybe the actions that I'm doing and you're doing and other people might doing might move the needle in a different direction. If it does, hallelujah, great. Like the guy who found water in the desert, you know, praise the Virgin. But... I'm not going to base my future on that hope because chances are it won't happen. So I don't want to, yeah, so, so the person who's dying, yes, maybe the, the cancer will go into remission and they get another 50, 15 years. Fantastic. I will praise that. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with also dealing with that it may not and preparing for that as well. So I think what I'm talking about is a radical honesty of not being able to predict the future and not knowing what the future will bring.
0: There is, I think, I can't see the name, it's, it's a little cut off here, but this is a great, uh, a great reminder. This person says, I noticed that when I or others push towards hope uh, with people that they are working with as chaplains, it comes from a place of discomfort. Your suffering is making me uncomfortable so I want you to be hopeful to alleviate my inability to be with you in your suffering. So it occurs to me that if a chaplain is able to enter into that hopelessness, sorry, my lights are turning off here. Um, if a chaplain is able to enter into that hopelessness, um, it is, it is a way of suffering with the person that they're with of, of just sort of, you know, taking on this, this really terrible discomfort. But, but, that also, to me, and again, I'm like you, I'm not a chaplain. So we're driving all over the road here. It's not that we're not in our lanes. We're just, you know, we're going nuts here. Um, but that seems to violate one of the core principles of being a chaplain, which is to not make the encounter about you. Um, so this is a very fine line to, to, to balance here of, of making sure this person knows I am entering into this discomfort with you without saying as much. Um, how do you acknowledge hopelessness uh, without making it about the chaplain? I don't know.
1: <laughs> no, I, I think the person who wrote that question is absolutely right. It's not about you and how uncomfortable you feel. It's it's really about radical solidarity with the person at the point the person is. And, and again, I'm not chaplain, but I do have children and, and adult children. And once in a while, my kids call me with a major problem. Yeah. You know, they, they can't find a, a job or you know, they're having difficulty with a relationship. And because I love them so dearly, I don't want to see them suffering. And, and their suffering is making me feel horrible because I love them so much. My tendency to say, oh, don't worry. It's all going to work out. You'll find a job in no time. You're very talented. Don't worry about it. Yeah. When, what I should probably be saying is, no, we have, you know, we baby boomers have screwed up this economy and neoliberalism has created an un tenable position for a lot of millennials in, in this generation so first of all i need to apologize for that And <laughs> how do we start figuring out what happens if you don't get that job right you know, how do we start thinking about surviving in the mid now, now look, keep saying that application we're gonna we're gonna you know wish for the best and you do get the job and and, and it's all gonna work and it's gonna work out but if you don't, what then becomes some other alternatives I mean to be thinking about? I think that's more helpful. Yeah, you know, I th- And now I, I have two kids. One found a great job, so yay. The other one's struggling right now and hasn't found one yet. And uh, you know, I gave the same speech to both. One it worked out. The other one it hasn't worked out yet. Uh, mm-hmm. And it may not. And we already have plans. If it doesn't, how do we survive economically? And I think that's so much more helpful than just me trying not to dwell in their suffering and in their anxiety and in their angst of the moment. You know, you mentioned at the beginning
0: how uh, concepts of of hope or apathy as a result of hopelessness, they're so culturally conditioned. Who we are, where we are, this time, this place. Um, There is a question in here that has to do with um, it, this question specifically mentions the Buddhist notion of abandoning hope. Um, that's one example. But, you know, I, I don't know how, how wide-ranging your expertise is, but surely there have to be other cultures and other uh, philosophical systems where this tension almost doesn't even exist, that our anxiety over hope or hopelessness, this is a, produ- this is a product of where we are, um, you know, what does it look like for, for cultures and societies that don't even, that, that, that just don't even deal with any of this?
1: Right. No, it, it's a fantastic question. First of all, um, I think you're right. Because of the way Christianity has been constructed, that, uh, you know, this idea of a salvation history, my salvation history, I'm not saying that there's a heaven in the end. I'm saying that history moves in an upward progression until we get to a heaven. Um, salvation history is also in economics, whether it be Marxism, that we all get to, uh, the utopia of the, of the wither away state, or capitalism, that a rising tide will raise all boats. So this idea of salvation history is part of a, of a Western Eurocentric culture, philosophical culture, that has infected all of us. So, oh, no, of course, we're struggling with this issue. Um, one of the people who really influenced my thinking, I'm not a Buddhist. Um, but was a Zen Buddhist by the name of Nishida, who lived in the beginning of the 1900s, in where he probably wrote the best explanation of, the, of Christianity I've ever read And Crucifixion, of Jesus becoming nothing on the cross. And in the presence of that nothing, those of us who stand before the cross also become nothing. So this idea of nothingness definitely is in the back of my mind as I was trying to work with these concepts of hopelessness. Uh, Again, I'm not a Buddhist. I don't want to appropriate a a different philosophical idea, but it definitely has influenced me. I think other cultures, you know, this concept just doesn't exist. It's just recognized as the way it is. Um, I mentioned the Yoruba tradition, of which I'm more familiar with because it is part of my culture, in where the Orishas um, either you know um, can help lead to great things, or realize now it's going to be horrible. So how do we deal with the the horror that's coming? You know, there isn't this idea that it's all going to work out in the end, right? But it doesn't. So many traditions, uh, you know, um, deal with this very differently, and I think our tradition um, it's probably the the, the the least helpful in, in dealing with the reality of 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 of, of tragedy of, of um, what we like to call in theological circles, th- so uh, the- uh, theodicy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There was a, uh, a little bit farther up in the chat here. There was a great question that got at both sort of the, the, the culture and the time period of this. Uh, and, and the question was, is this tension between hope and hopelessness, is this a product of modernity? Mm. Uh, I think the answer is yes. It doesn't mean that's the answer. That's what, what occurs to me and whatever the answer is to it, can we address this issue from modernity or do we have to totally step out of our cultural and historical moment to, you know, to get anything done basically?
1: Yeah, no, yeah, it's very insightful because quite frankly, um, like I said earlier, I did drink the Foucault (laughs) Kool-Aid. So I'm obviously approaching this um, from a philosophical understanding that eliminates the construct and, and, and the concept of time and the movement of time. And, and that in itself becomes a postmodern turn. which postmodernism, we have to also remember, is part of the Eurocentric modernity conversation to begin with. So I'm, I'm still trapped in modernity, even though I'm using postmodern concepts, saying that it's postmodern, when in fact it's still part of the modernity conversation. Um, so yes, I'm trying to step out of modernity, as understood in Eurocentric terms, and trying to balance um, what Europeans call pre-modernity by going to trickster images and and and, and non-Christian religious images. Which um, and, and, and pre-modernity, I don't see that as a derogatory term, although that's the way it sounds as well as a post-modernity of where do we go if, indeed, there is no history.
0: Right. So
1: this is a, I am wrestling with the whole idea of modernity here. Because in modernity, you know, it's all going to work out. God's in charge. God keeps God's promises. And that sounds fantastic. But, as I mentioned, Auschwitz, God did not keep God's promises to the Jews at Auschwitz. So what do you do post Auschwitz with a God who did not keep God's promises, which is the whole post Holocaust conversation within Jewish thought. You know, that's also, you know, in the back of my mind as I wrestle with these issues.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking, I don't know where all of our audience members work, where they are, but I'm thinking, I'm imagining, i um, imagining a, a chaplain in a hospital who does rounds, you know, in a maternity ward tomorrow or ICU or, or somewhere even less sort of intense. Um, you know, they're worried about the day-to-day tomorrow and the number of patients they have to get and the grants they have to write, this, that, and the other. What are some resources... That chaplains can use to sort of uh, better acquaint themselves with this, if they want to, if they want to sort of dive into this a little bit more deeply, um, you know, what what should they be, what should they be looking at? I mean, um, I don't know if you have a, a syllabus that you could share with us, or just you know make a couple of recommendations, but something, because I think this is one of those really big ideas that could have great implications in day-to-day work. But it doesn't necessarily recommend itself right off the bat. For here's how you can put this to use tomorrow.
1: <laughs> no, definitely. Uh, I mean, these are these are really philosophical concepts that I don't believe has has yet to to uh, disseminate itself among the day to day actions people can take. Sure. Um, but saying that in a um, Shameless Act of Self-Promotion. <laughs> I, I could mention two books. Oh! That, um, that begin to deal with some of this. I mean, to, maybe to get a better grasp of what I'm talking about. Um, I wrote a book um, published by Fortress Press called um, Embracing Hopelessness, that's the title. And that's purely theological and philosophical. That just deals with um, with, with, with these issues, but also, really tries to um, center the conversation in, in, in the Latinx culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what I'm trying to get at. Um, the other book, and, and there's a trilogy of books, that was the last one I wrote on this topic. The middle book that I wrote on this topic was more of a biblical book. It was a interpretation of the life of Jesus Christ. And it's called The Politics of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's Jesus with the accent on the U. (laughs) And it's basically doing doing a biblical scholarship with an accent, literally the accent on the U and my own accent when I speak. And and that looks at the life of Jesus in the biblical text, and it ends with understanding how do we do biblical scholarship with this idea of hopelessness and this idea of corriendo. And then the very first book that I wrote on this, which which began the whole conversation, is called Latino-Latina Social Ethics. Mm -hmm. And in that one, I basically look at the three major ethicists of the last century, um, Washington Bush in the beginning, um, Niebuhr, Midway, and Horowitz towards the end, Mm -hmm. and explain how all three are complicit with empire, and therefore they have to be rejected. Um, and after I reject the canon, I look at three leftist uh, or left of center thinkers
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in ministry: Sider, um, Wallace, and oh, um, what's his name? Sider, um, uh, Wallace, and um, I forgot the third one's name right now. This is embarrassing. Campola. Yeah. Uh, and, and show how even these so-called liberal Ministers are also complicit with empire, and how (laughs) they must be rejected. And then I go into developing this whole idea of um, an ethics by the Horede based on hopelessness, and that's where 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 some of these ideas first develop. So there's a trilogy of books, um, um, literally, in where um, I expand this concept first um, um, ethically, second biblically, and then the last one philosophically. Um, you, my suggestion is wrestling with those concepts, then maybe that might lead to individuals to determine, you know, what kind of practice they could implement within their own social location.
0: Sure, sure. Well, I'm, I'm conscious of the time and I'm watching, I'm watching the, uh, the participation list. I'm thinking people are, are having to get back to work as, as people are sort of uh, trickling out. So um, I will just say thank you again. For your time this has been uh, this has been absolutely fantastic and you know you're right these are really deep intense philosophical thoughts that we're grasping uh, and grappling with so I think that we're all going to have to take some time to um, <laughs> take some time to kind of bring this all together and figure out how we can put this to use in on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, since you know that's that's where chaplaincy actually makes a difference is in a one-on-one, uh, interaction. So there's a lot to chew on here and I know that everyone's going to be doing that over the next couple of uh, weeks and months. Thank you all for being here. Um, I think we pretty much addressed most of the questions um, either directly or in passing so uh, thank you all for uh, for participating that way. You should go buy Miguel's books. <laughs> we, we, You know, that was that was purely by accident. He did not ask for a plug. We just happened to stumble on it. So go buy Miguel's books. They're great stocking stuffers as you're doing your holiday shopping. Um, Maybe not the most like happy stocking stuffers, but they will fit in there to be sure. So uh, thank you all very much. This is recorded. We will post it to the Chaplain's Innovation Lab website over the next couple of days. Um, And other than that, we will see you next time. Thank you, Miguel, for your time this afternoon. My pleasure. You have a good day now. Bye bye. Bye bye.